Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... You know, I tell people I have the easiest product in the world to sell. It's one of the few products where all you have to do is just say its name and people smile and their eyes light up. And there's tremendous talent in Las Vegas that makes that happen. We're taking a tour of the United States this week as we explore some American stories in the world of urbanism that have caught our eye. From a look at how Sin City survived through some tough years for tourism, to a new park on the banks of the Mississippi River, and fresh plans in Washington, D.C. too. Plus, Nashville's hopes to boost its green credentials by opening the door to timber high-rises. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. We start today in one of the most recognisable cities in the United States, if not the world. Las Vegas, an oasis in the Nevada desert, has been immortalised in film. Well, what you need is a weekend in Las Vegas, the playground of the world. Featured in songs. And even created its own catchphrase. Remember what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This sort of fame means that the city leans heavily on tourism to fuel the local economy, with its famous casinos, iconic neon skyline and reputation for luxury bringing visitors from around the world. So, how has a city that relies so heavily on tourism fared over a disruptive past few years, and what does it have planned for its future? Steve Hill is the Chief Executive Officer and President of the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, and he joined Monocle's Tom Edwards in our studios recently. Tom began by asking how challenging it is to promote one of the world's most well-known cities in new and exciting ways. You know, I tell people I have the easiest product in the world to sell. It's one of the few products where all you have to do is just say its name and people smile and their eyes light up. And there's tremendous talent in Las Vegas that makes that happen. And you're right, there's a lot of work to do in order to meet and exceed the expectations that we try and set for ourselves and our customers have when they come. You know, they want something memorable. They want something where they can leave and tell a story about having been there. So it needs to be elevated. And Las Vegas delivers on that, which is why it's so popular. But it takes a lot of people in that city to make that great every day. Well, and this is the point, isn't it? It's about the detail, and sometimes that's not the sexy part of it. If you're seeing huge numbers of people coming into the city to attend conferences, conventions, exhibitions, it's actually the unsexy detail, the seamlessness of the experience that makes people come back for more or go away and say, you know, next year we're going to bring our conference here. Is there a secret? Is there a secret beyond just great people and hard work to deliver that kind of experience? Vegas is the city in the United States most reliant on a single industry. 29% of our employment comes from tourism and hospitality directly. And the city was built as a platform for tourism and hospitality. It is condensed. You know, you land at the airport, the airport's five minutes or 10 minutes away from the Las Vegas Strip and 150,000 rooms and hundreds of great restaurants and great shopping. And you can do all that really within walking distance most of the time. Every now and then you have to get in a cab or an Uber and move around a little bit. But the compact nature and the complete focus on that industry and taking care of the 42, 3 million visitors that we have that come every year 
pretty hard to replicate any place else. Crazy numbers, 40 million plus. That's a large number. It is. I'm not a sector specialist, but <laughs> I know a big number when I, when I hear one. Tell me, though, a bit about the effort that goes into showing that Vegas has another side, because we mentioned that people have preconceived ideas, many of which are positive, and you have to work very hard to deliver on those or exceed those expectations. But it is a city that is full of other kinds of surprises. Do you like, Steve, to share narratives about what happens if you scratch the surface and dig a little deeper? What can be found? Yeah, we really do. And really, the growth in social media has helped us do that. It was hard to segment or personalize a message prior to social media being available because, you know, it was basically television, radio, print. And that's generally to a broader mass market audience. Now we have the ability to understand what different people are interested in. And Vegas has such a breadth of offerings that more granular messaging is important to us. We find that typically somewhere between 25 and 30% of the folks out there have no interest in hearing about Las Vegas. The other 70, 75% are big fans. We have pushed lately the expansion of sports in Las Vegas and one of the real benefits is that a good portion of the 25 or 30% who typically wouldn't consider Las Vegas want to come now because of sports. We've been able to broaden our audience, and the events are great. It makes the city energized, but it also opens up our potential customer base. What makes then, I mean, we've talked already in broad terms about what makes Vegas a bit of an outlier, but certainly the monocle narrative, it's funny, I'm sat with our July-August quality of life issue, which is about the best cities in which to set up shop and to live. I think I'm right in saying we don't have North American cities in our top 20. It's always had a bit of a European bias. And I talk to colleagues, I talk to Tyler, and we talk about trips, obviously, particularly to the eastern seaboard or to the west coast, and lots of challenges. Do you consider Vegas to be an outlier when it comes to the big U.S. conurbations, or do you think that it has the same challenges and opportunities as other cities? Well, it's probably some of both. Vegas is clearly an outlier. I mean, no matter what viewpoint you have of Las Vegas, it's a different city than you'll find anyplace else in the world. We talk about ourselves as a category of one, and we are trying to make that happen. I mean, that's we're after that. But, you know, we have similar obstacles that any city has. Sustainability and climate change are affecting the southwestern part of the United States in a number of different ways. But, you know, water is an issue. Sustainability is an issue in Las Vegas. I'll tell you, I moved to Las Vegas 35 years ago. And when I moved there, it was about a quarter of the size that it is now. We use less water in Las Vegas than when I moved there, which is a pretty remarkable statistic. That's extraordinary. You know, you're running the authority. How integrated is your work uh, that you and your colleagues do on a day-to-day with the rest of the kind of municipality and the infrastructure I'm thinking about? You mentioned already getting around. We know the US has its struggles with transport infrastructure. But how easy and convenient is the overlay of responsibilities? Do you work super closely with City Hall, I guess, with federal authorities for certain projects? How integrated all of it? Or is there actually some efficiencies maybe that could still happen on on that side of things that might make the whole city work a, a little better? Yeah, no, actually, we work very closely with all of those entities. And the Las Vegas 
Boulevard is actually in unincorporated Clark County. It's actually not in the city of Las Vegas, but talking about Clark County is not nearly as sexy as talking <laughs> about Las Vegas. But we partner with the airport and do airline development. We own the monorail in Las Vegas and operate that. We have contracted with Elon Musk's boring company and have installed the first commercial boring tunnel system that he's ever had underneath our convention center. We're expanding that out into the city itself. We work very closely with our Department of Transportation on the infrastructure that it takes to get people to be able to drive to Las Vegas, the interstate system. So we have a very close working relationship with our local governments, as well as our resort partners. Tell me a bit about ambitions going forwards. Your in-tray is so busy day to day, you've got to be thinking about what you're doing tomorrow. But you've also got to have an eye on a three-year, five-year, 10-year, 50-year time horizon. How do you, Steve, calibrate your expectations, your, your plans? Do you try and delegate bits of each day to those different time horizons? Do you have to just take a holistic view? What, how do you make sense of all of those different time horizons? Well, I'll say a couple of things. One is I mentioned earlier that Las Vegas is built basically as a platform for tourism and hospitality. We tell our customers, our big ones that come there for huge events, that we're a platform for your event. Developing that capacity is more our job than planning what's next. Because the other thing I will say is, and I've said this often, I've been involved in a great number of fantastic projects, and virtually none of them have been my idea. (laughs) (laughs) And those opportunities come along because so many great people want to plug into Las Vegas and make what they want to make happen happen in our city. And it's really up to us to develop the capacity to accept those great ideas when they come along. They're pretty hard to force, but there's a lot of them out there. And Vegas has just done a fantastic job of being able to say yes. Well, just one aside on that. Is Vegas kind of immune to, because in a lot of ways, it's a super progressive city and it's a real innovator. And you're very modest, Steve, about your contributions. But these innovations don't happen if there aren't some smart people doing the oversight. Is it immune from some of the vagaries, the political vagaries? And I don't want to get into a deep political conversation, but obviously it's a big year in the US. There's a general election coming up and all the rest of it. I don't know. Do you have to think about that? Again, or does Vegas retain that outlier status that's actually quite useful maybe during times of political volatility that Vegas can kind of say, yeah, 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 the white noise is there, but we're still here doing our thing. Does that play into the, the narrative, I don't know, on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it can. We're not completely immune to it. But I'll tell you the importance of the industry that we're in to Las Vegas and to Nevada is something you can't miss. And those in elected office see it. They support it. They know how important it is. We're the economic engine of not only our city, but our state. And when that engine slows down, and it did here three years ago, and when it did, Nevada set a record for the highest unemployment ever recorded since unemployment was measured in the United States in April of 2020 at 30.4% unemployment. So everybody got to see just recently how important that industry is because when it wasn't there, it was easily seen. Well, and just on that point then, do you think Vegas can be more on the international level then? Because I guess there's a huge number of visitors and again, sat here in London, we know the narrative that surrounds the city. But do you think there's another level for Vegas as an international hub that could be tapped into potentially? 
Yeah, we do. And it's actually one of our primary focuses. And Vegas has matured. I mean, I, like I said, I've been there 35 years. It was a quarter of the size that it is right now. And so the, our audience was more regional, not even as much national then as it is now. But the opportunity that remains for us is international. Mm. You know, we've Man U coming to play in just a couple of weeks. Uh. Yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. We had Chelsea. Does that help? Uh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but those types of events bring the eyes of the world to our city. It's a reason that the stadium matters so much because we've been able to have these international events there. And so our focus really is internationally going forward. Steve, I want to ask you a personal question. Don't worry, nothing too invasive. When I was last in, in Vegas, I did that cliche alert, you know, drove in from Los Angeles. You see the city there as you kind of come over that little crest and it is something completely, uniquely enticing about it. And there's a feeling in the city unlike any other that I've ever been to anywhere. Yeah. Is there a single moment where you, I don't know, had a, an epiphany like that? Did you see the city, you know, as day was breaking? Did you see a particular event? Was it the topping out of a particular building or a specific project? Is there a singular moment that you can think back to? Maybe it's very recent. Maybe it's imminent, just around the corner, that to you encaptures everything that, that Vegas means to you? Yeah, sure. And it's very similar because when I moved to Vegas, I was in Ohio, I bought a pickup truck. I put my stuff in the back of the pickup truck, and I drove across the country to Las Vegas. And it was in October. It was a beautiful day and then night, and it was after midnight by the time I came. I came from the north where you came from the south, but same thing happened. I drove up. I could see light in the sky as I'm driving in. I just think, it looks like something's on fire. And you go over the rise, and you're still 20 miles away, but the city's just laid out. And in the desert at night, it's so clear that you can see for, well, until something blocks your vision. So you can just see the entire valley laid out. And I fell in love with Vegas in just the first couple of days I was there. My thanks to Steve Hill there, in conversation with Tom Edwards. We head to Memphis now, where six years after Confederate statues were removed from its downtown parks... The city is reopening its transformed downtown riverfront. Tomley Park, which sits along the bank of the Mississippi River, is an ecological and placemaking success story in what is now the nation's largest black-majority population city. Earlier, Monocle's Carlotta Ribello was joined by Carol Coletta, president and CEO of the Memphis River Parks Partnership. Carlotta began by asking Carol where the ambition to transform this part of the city came from and why now was the right time to do it. In a lot of ways, the Memphis Riverfront is separated from the city, is isolated from the city. That's not, as you know, an unusual condition in cities all over the world. Uh, but Memphis is on the Mississippi River, a very storied river, one of the most storied rivers in the world, at its widest and wildest point, which means that not only is the riverfront separated from the city, but it's also separated in some ways from the river, which rises and falls 55 feet a year. So it has historically been difficult to develop. And again, not unlike a lot of cities, our riverfront was used for trade and back of house purposes. So reclaiming the riverfront has been 
difficult, not always intuitive, but it is past time to do it. We've got this marvelous resource that we are finally, after 100 years of planning, taking uh, full advantage of. We've done several smaller projects along the riverfront. They've been wildly popular. And now we're getting a chance to do probably the most visible piece of property in the city, right at the city's front door, a piece of land, 31 acres called Tomley Park. Now, let's talk about this new project, Tomley Park. The imagery is stunning, and it looks like the potential here for it to become a proper placemaking endeavor. It's ripe for that, to redefine the area. What was the vision behind it? The vision, in part, was to take this piece of land that was quite barren, built on top of a Corps of Engineers dike wall, and to take it and make it, again, a beautiful front door, something that would instantly communicate that you're in an ambitious city versus what it appeared before, a very sleepy river town, and then to connect it very seamlessly to the city. And that has happened with not only the making of the park, but also where we began our work on this project, something called the the Cutbank Bluff, which is a a way to scale gently a 30-foot high bluff that our city sits on and, again, separates us from the river. It also, I would say, I mean, the Mississippi River Flyway is very significant as an environmental and ecological resource. And so part of what we've done here is not only made that connection from the park to the city, from the river to the city, seamless, but also we've, with the help of landscape architects, done a wonderful job of improving the habitat and honoring the significance of the Mississippi River Flyway. Well, it is incredible when you look at the scale of it. And from what I can tell, it has as well, as expected, quite a price tag of $61 million. But we're talking here about a huge tree canopy, places for people to sit, that connection to the water. Are there any other particular special features of the Tomley Park that you could perhaps describe for us? Several. One is we we really set out to create what I'll call park life. In other words, a park is not something you visit, but a park is a place where you live your life. And I was very much inspired, oddly enough, by the work that Katarina Portas had done in Lisbon to revive all of the wonderful historic kiosks around the city and make them really key parts of the city with food and beverage. So uh, we have serious food and beverage, not just snack food. In the park, we have a fabulous Monstrum-designed playground, a firm out of Copenhagen. This is a river-themed playground that's quite wonderful, even if you don't play, but if you play, it's spectacular. And Studio Gang has built an enormous feature right at the heart of the park we call the Sunset Canopy. And it is an absolutely stunning structure that is under roof but open air. It's funny, when I looked at it, I thought, oh, is this going to just overwhelm and swallow the park? But instead, it takes advantage of the wideness of the Mississippi River at Memphis, and it really holds the park in such a a glorious way. I should also mention We have pieces of sculpture installed in two places in the park from Chicago-based artist Theaster Gates. 
Now, there's also, of course, another element here that this is opening at a time where Memphis is also redefining how the city is viewed and how residents relate to the city, you know, six years after Confederate statues were removed from downtown parks. And, of course, the name of this new park, Tomley, is meant exactly to honour the life of a local resident. What can you tell us about that? Tom Lee is a genuine hero and humanitarian who, in 1925, found himself on his regular day on a skiff boat on the Mississippi River delivering packages along the way. He was Black. He could not swim. He saw a boat capsize in the river, managed to save 32 drowning passengers from the Mississippi River who were all white, all privileged, made multiple trips into the river to save, you know, struggling people, pulling them into a small skiff boat. And only 17 people survived that tragedy that he did not save. So to be able to honor him in this park has been so gratifying. We have his descendants involved, along with descendants of survivors involved in the making of the park. And part of what we're doing here is not just building a gorgeous park that we believe will enable park life and community in Memphis, but also to call forth the values that Tom Lee exhibited in his heroic rescue and the caring, the concern, the he was very modest. He said afterwards in being lauded, well, I didn't do what anyone else wouldn't do. And he's just a beautiful, modest individual who I think very much deserves this kind of honor, if no other reason than to remind us that we all have the ability to meet the moment with courage and grace and kindness toward others. And so that's a layer on top of the park that I think few parks enjoy. And we look forward to making that a reality in the park. Carol Coletta there in conversation with Colotta Rebello. My thanks to them both. Next up, we're off to Tennessee, where recently approved regulation changes will allow timber towers to be constructed in Nashville city limits. Monocle's Nick Manise brings us more. Nashville has recently approved the construction of high-rise timber buildings within its city limits, becoming the latest US government body to make such a move. The Tennessee city follows others, such as Denver, as well as states including California and Washington, in embracing a 2021 regulation from the International Building Code. It's a move that supports the construction of wooden buildings up to 18 storeys high. It's a policy that could have a significant effect on the Music City skyline. Previously, timber constructions had to top out at six storeys. Most significantly, however, is the impact that the regulation could have on the work of environmentally-minded developers. Buildings made from wood have a smaller carbon footprint than their concrete or steel-framed counterparts, and they continue to store carbon over the course of their lifetime. And while this should be celebrated, it's no reason for architects or developers to rest on their laurels. Just ask Alexandra Hagen, CEO of White Architecture, the design studio behind the Sara Cultural Centre in Sweden, a 20-storey tall timber building. Speaking about the wooden construction, Hagen explained that timber buildings still need to be made in a responsible way and that forests cannot simply be replaced by plantations to fuel growing demand for wooden constructions. 
Doing so, Hagen warns, makes the planet less resilient to a changing climate. It's a salient reminder from one of the world's foremost timber architecture firms. Wooden buildings are no silver bullet when it comes to sustainability. As with all new constructions, sourcing and supply chains need to be responsibly managed too. My thanks there to Nick Manis. Lastly today, we head to Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., one of the world's most iconic streets. Earlier this month, city and federal authorities agreed to partner on a plan to remake the street into a more of a central gathering place for tourists and residents alike. Monocle's Chris Chermack spoke with Marcel Acosta, Executive Director of the National District Planning Commission, which has responsibility for the planning and development of federal land in Washington. And he asked him about a new vision for Pennsylvania Avenue. Pennsylvania Avenue is really where the district, the local city, meets the federal city. There's the National Mall to the south of Pennsylvania Avenue. Downtown D.C. is to the north of Pennsylvania Avenue. This is really a centerpiece of what downtown D.C. collectively can mean in terms of a future revitalization of our city. It's a great opportunity, uh, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, to kind of rethink this major street that has great brand equity. Everybody really knows Pennsylvania Avenue. It's very well-known nationally and internationally. But when you go there today, this isn't really meeting its potential. And we all agree that this could be a place where we could turn this great street into much more of a venue. It could actually do a lot to kind of catalyze that symbiotic relationship uh, between the downtown and the business community and the tourism that occurs there with even the great museums on the mall. This could be the great mixing place or where people could gather and celebrate what it means to be an American, what it could really mean to be a, a district resident. Really, I think we're looking at it as an opportunity, being a centerpiece, being a major piece of reimagining downtown D.C. When you think about the legacy of Pennsylvania Avenue, what do you think it represents in the, the public consciousness here in the United States? I think the great image of Pennsylvania Avenue is obviously the inauguration parade that occurs every four years. It is a transition of power in our government. I think it's really kind of this notion of celebrating what a democracy means. But I think it's also could be a place where we, you know, a lot of people use it to protest their First Amendment rights. Over time, you've seen the suffrage march movements of the early 20th century that occurred on Pennsylvania Avenue. It is a place of history. People talk about what being an American means to them on the streets. So I think it really has that sort of importance to our citizens. And I think that's one thing that we really want to maintain as part of this overall re-envisioning of Pennsylvania Avenue. But also, I think on a day-to-day basis, what does it mean to somebody who lives in downtown D.C.? What does Pennsylvania Avenue mean to a visitor on their first trip to Washington, D.C.? They come to the street, they take a photo of the Capitol. It's a great view shed with the Capitol Dome kind of at the very end of Pennsylvania Avenue. But, you know, when you go there today, there's not much more you can do other than that unless there's a big event going on. So on a day-to-day basis, uh, we're looking at opportunities for people to feel more comfortable in this environment, maybe stay a little longer on Pennsylvania Avenue as they come into downtown D.C. or to the mall. And if you were a downtown worker or a downtown resident, I mean, you could use the street in a much different way. So we're thinking at different levels. So practically speaking, the reason that you describe that difference, if you will, is that when there is an inauguration or an event, 
you shut down Pennsylvania Avenue from cars, but otherwise it is this sprawling avenue, which to your point of the day-to-day is why it's hard to make it a kind of day-to-day venue. So there are three different proposals for what Pennsylvania Avenue should look like. Some have more of that venue aspect you're talking about, more space for events. Others have still more car lanes. Some have more bike lanes. Talk about what goes into that process, what the the ideal is here, or how, how one chooses. That's a very good question. Last year, we released a vision, or three different visions, for Pennsylvania Avenue, kind of using this theme of what if the avenue became less of a auto-dominated street into more of a place where we could have different types of activities and use different types of transportation, and we have more choice of that. So we had three schemes that we put forward. Now, one was called Urban Capital. That really was just a better version of what you see today. Wider sidewalks, a little more lushly landscape. Uh, we would do much more multimodal travel on the street. So basically, that was one option. It's probably the most conservative options that we had put forward. We looked at two different schemes. Uh, the second one was called Linear Green. In that case, we had asked the question, what would happen if we thought about Pennsylvania Avenue as much more of a green, lush parkway? With less auto traffic, some versions looked at maybe it should just be transit lanes and bicycles and pedestrian. We planted this street much more lushly with shade, places for people to recreate. What would that look like? So we put that vision out there. The third piece was really called Civic Stage. And that really looked at what if we thought about Pennsylvania Avenue as a venue? We would stage great events. What if we did a wonderful flower show? on the street? What if we did a wonderful winter fest on the street? So I was really taking advantage of the center of Pennsylvania Avenue. It really looked at kind of three very different cases for Pennsylvania Avenue. I think we received a lot of comments on that last year when we put it out to the public. I think the majority of people either liked the linear green or the civic stage, but I think people were inspired by those choices. You know, part of it is to get people engaged and excited about the potential of this street and what it could become. That was Marcella Costa speaking with Monocle's very own Chris Chermack. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast, get new episodes every week, and subscribe to Monocle magazine, where we also cover this topic in depth. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carla Trebello and David Stevens. And David, well, he also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Elvis Presley with Viva Las Vegas. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas with your neon flashing and your one-armed bandits crashing. All those holes down the drain.